Robots Radio presents... In 1995, stars Tom Hanks and Tim Allen gave the world a charming introduction to what would become the most innovative and powerful animation studio of its time. In 2020, we return to Ireland to sample a flight. The film is Toy Story. The whiskey is The Whistler. And we'll review them both. This is the, the Film and, and Whiskey, Whiskey Podcast. Podcast. Welcome to the Film and Whiskey Podcast, where each week we review a classic movie and a glass of whiskey. I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And this week, we are throwing it back to 1995 to look at Pixar's first film, Toy Story. Hey, Buzz! You're flying! This isn't flying. This is falling with style. Brad, it's good to be back in the studio with you today. We are in the middle of our 1995 marathon. We had three films on the dock and a fourth film that has been selected by our listeners. Uh, so this is movie number two. Last week, we looked at Apollo 13. This week, we're sticking with Tom Hanks, and we're looking at the very first Toy Story film. My boy, Tommy Hanks. This is like, this is him at literal peak Tom Hanks, I think we will ever see. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. Like right now, I mean, he's coming off of Forrest Gump, Apollo 13. He's going into probably one of the, I don't know if I'd call it the greatest, but it might be one of the most famous animated movies ever to be created. Like, I know that Frozen, I've heard that Frozen is kind of big, but I still feel like Toy Story just is a landmark in cinema for what Pixar did with animation and style and bringing the genre forward. I mean, it's just it's just such an important movie. Brad, this movie like it is such an integral part of my childhood that I literally cannot imagine a world without Toy Story. And you know, we we talked about this a little bit with our Lion King episode. I think The Lion King is the first movie that I actually remember going to see in the theater. I was so little. I don't remember much about it, but I remember being in the theater. And with Toy Story, it's almost a similar thing for me. It's like, you know, in my mind, I feel like this movie has existed from the foundations of time because it's just it's so comforting to go back and rewatch. And when you when you first see the you've got a friend in me number during the opening credits, it's like there's just such a warm, nostalgic feeling. And I just feel like I am at home when I'm watching this movie. I don't know if you have the same experience with it that I do, but I watched this film endless times as a kid. Yeah, Bob, I don't know if this is one that I watched the most. I think uh, Beauty and the Beast might have taken that or Aladdin. But man, oh man, I watched this movie a ton as a kid. And coming back to it for the first time as an adult was honestly refreshing. Um, It was amazing to me to see how smart the script is, how um, adult geared some of the humor is. Like this movie just, it hits on a lot of different levels. But I, I was a little nervous to come back to this and, and wonder, like, you know, did does my childhood idol stand up to scrutiny once, you know, you're an adult? And I think for the most part, it does. Yeah, I think that's a great way to say it, Brad. For the most part, it really does. When I look at Pixar movies now, you know, in 2020, I think they're just 
they have streamlined the Pixar storytelling technique to such a point where they're just firing on all cylinders all the time. And to the point where, you know, sometimes I think it's a fair criticism of Pixar that their movies kind of are the same or they follow the same trajectory. Going back and looking at Toy Story, this first one, was a really interesting exercise for me because you can really see some of the rougher edges. You know, I, I'm going to say up front, I think my favorite of the Toy Story movies has always been Toy Story 2. I think they take a lot of what works in the first one, um, but it's not quite as dark as this one is. They, they really make sure that they know who their target audience is. And for this first one, I was kind of surprised at some of the stuff that you encountered, like how violent the movie is, how mean spirited the movie can be at parts. It really is kind of and I'm not saying it doesn't work. I think this movie totally still works, but it is really interesting kind of watching the Pixar company find its footing like in real time watching this movie. Oh, yeah. I mean, you you have. Honestly, like Woody is kind of the villain for a large portion of this movie. Yeah. You know, the the scene where he tries to knock uh I mean, this is this is right up uh Scorsese's alley from the <laughs> from the departed. Like you have Woody driving the RC car trying to knock uh Buzz down the back side of a desk and he ends up the, all these tacks start falling off the board and he gets knocked out and falls out the window and like you look at Woody and you go holy cow like Woody's kind of a jerk in this and I don't think you see things like that from your protagonists in later Pixar movies. No, you definitely don't. And I think that speaks to how long this movie was in development. John Lasseter uh, was the guy who really spearheaded this whole thing. He had worked at Disney in the 1980s, and he had really been a proponent of computer animation. He pitched a movie to Disney that was going to be completely computer animated, and they said, no, and in fact, you're fired. And so he went off and started Pixar, which then got bought up by Steve Jobs. After a few years, Disney changed uh, their CEO. They started coaxing John Lasseter back, realized they couldn't get him back. And so they struck a deal with Pixar to make a movie. Now, up to this point, Disney had really only made all their movies like in-house. Uh, and that was kind of broken when Tim Burton did A Nightmare Before Christmas. So they, they struck a deal with Pixar that they would be able to create the film. But Disney had a really great, you know, distribution deal. And they only gave such a percentage to Pixar, things like that. But this movie was in development for years and years. And at the beginning of it, it was going to be that Woody was a ventriloquist dummy who looked like a cowboy. And he was an outright villain. Like, just a horrible, horrible person in this film. And they kept having to walk him back more and more and make him a little bit more palatable, a little bit more comfortable, until it got to the point where it became really a buddy movie between Woody and Buzz. And you still had some of those kind of, uh, you know, villainous things in Woody, but ultimately you know, he was going to be redeemed or he was going to learn a lesson at the end of the film. I think it's really interesting that you still see some of those things happening in this movie, though. Yeah, I think I think what actually happened was they slowly walked it back till they got to the point where they said, can we hire Tom Hanks for this character? <laughs> right, exactly. And, and one, once that answer was yes, they were like, all right, he's perfect. Leave him as he is. Well, Brad, I think <laughs> I think this is a perfect time to get into talking about the movie Toy Story. I don't know anyone who's going to be listening to this podcast who's never seen Toy Story. But just in case, I think we should move into our favorite segment, Brad Explains. This is where Brad breaks down the plot of the movie that he has just seen, often for the first time. And we know for a fact this was not Brad's first time seeing Toy Story. But Brad, will you break down in a spoiler-filled way the plot of the movie Toy Story? 
I sure will. I, I actually am thinking about it. I feel like the majority of the movies in season three I've actually seen. I, I don't think that many of them have been a first viewing for me. We're on a pretty good roll here, aren't we? Yeah, it's it's kind of nice. I feel a little good about myself. <laughs> but uh, yeah, the Toy Story. It's about two toys, uh, Woody and Buzz. Um, Woody has been this young boy, Andy's favorite toy for ages and ages and ages. And he occupies the prime spot in Andy's heart and on his bed. And this all changes one fateful birthday when Andy gets a new Buzz Lightyear toy. And Buzz immediately becomes the favorite and not only in Andy's heart, but he also becomes the favorite of all the other toys. And Woody, kind of driven to rage by this jealousy, um, accidentally throws Buzz out of the window um, of their two-story house into the bushes below. And with this, the entire room is turned against him. He goes on a trip to Pizza Planet with Andy. And on the way there, he and Buzz fight and get lost and separated from Andy and trying to get back to him. Um, they, they find their way back to Pizza Planet. And while at Pizza Planet, Buzz, who thinks that he is a space ranger, gets into a, a claw machine, a toy machine, and is taken by the local hooligan, Sid. And Woody and Buzz get taken to Sid's house, who likes to mutate uh, his toys. He rips the heads off of, you know, a, a doll and puts a pterodactyl head on it and things like that. And while at Sid's house, um, Sid straps a big old rocket onto Buzz and threatens to blow him up. And so Woody and the other toys scare the living piss out of Sid uh, by coming to life and they escape, but they don't get back in time because Andy's family is actually moving away from the house. And so they have to they have to drive the RC car and fight off dogs and all sorts of things to make it back onto the moving truck to make it back into Andy's uh, toy bin and be reunited with their owner. That's a really great explanation, Brad. Thank you for that. You know, one thing that I noticed as you were talking and as I was watching the movie, and I don't know if you're going to agree with me on this, Brad, but in a sense, I think this this feels like a very 90s movie. And I say that in this way. I think that this movie, more than the rest of the Pixar movies, is just very, very frenetic. Like, it's really fast-paced. There's not very much downtime in this whole movie. To the point where, you know, when Woody and Buzz were on their way to Pizza Planet, and Woody's in the back of that truck and, and the big toolbox comes and hits him, I started to notice every single scene had some sort of action element to it. Like, it, it was like the movie towards the end becomes basically rescue mission after rescue mission. They've got to break out of the house and then they've got to break onto the moving truck. And it really does feel like this movie is super fast paced and was really designed with kind of the 90s generation of kids in mind. Like we grew up on really, really fast paced marketing and movies. Like if you go back and watch commercials from the 90s, Brad, it's like I'm surprised we didn't have seizures watching advertising from the 90s. And I think one of the things I appreciate about where Pixar has gone since this is they've learned to slow down a little bit. They've learned to kind of take a break and take a breath in the movie and kind of let you get your bearings and, and kind of catch up to the film. Whereas this one, it almost I felt like a crotchety old man watching it. I was like, this is too loud. This is too fast. <laughs> I was really struggling with that for a while. Did you get off my lawn, you fast paced race car? Yeah, movie? For sure. I mean, like, did you have any problems with that or did you notice that at all? Uh, honestly, I, I don't think that was an issue for me. I, I do think that you're on to something like I, I actually just recently read a book called Console Wars, 
about the war between Sega and Nintendo in the early 90s. Uh-huh. And I, I don't know if you remember this, Bob, but like Sega like was the epitome of what you were talking about with their commercials for the Sega Genesis and Sonic. Because the catchphrase at, every, at the end of every single one of their Sega commercials was some kid yelling, Sega! <laughs> and like, yeah, I th- forgot about that. Do you remember that? Like, yeah, yeah. And like, that is the epitome of the 90s. Like, this is how we're going to get kids to get their parents to buy our stuff. And, and I would agree with you. Like, it's not something that hit me while I was watching it. But really, the last introspective moment of the movie you get is when Buzz is looking out at the moon and he's talking about the war against the evil Zerg and the dangers that is facing the Galactic Space Republic or whatever it's called. And, you know, it's it's honestly a really beautiful, quiet, introspective moment for him where, like, I think what I love about this movie is that they set Buzz up to be this deep, meaningful character who is full of purpose And at the same time, Woody is supposed to be a deep, meaningful character who's full of the purpose of being a toy. Mm -hmm. And yet both of their lives are completely upended when they realize how fragile their worldview actually is. I'm lost. Andy is gone. They're going to move from their house in two days and it's all your fault. My my fault? If you hadn't pushed me out of the window in the first place. Oh, yeah. Well, if you hadn't shown up your stupid little cardboard spaceship and taken away everything that was important to me. Don't talk to me about importance. Because of you, the security of this entire universe is in jeopardy. What? What are you talking about? Right now, poised at the edge of the galaxy, Emperor Zerg has been secretly building a weapon with the destructive capacity to annihilate an entire planet. I alone have information that reveals this weapon's only weakness. And you, my friend, are responsible for delaying my rendezvous with Star Command. You are a toy! You weren't the real Buzz Lightyear. You're a, uh, you're an action figure. You are a child's plaything. You are a sad, strange little man, and you have my pity. Farewell. And, and so you see things like that throughout the first half of the movie. But by the time you get to the second half of the movie, like you said, Bob, it's just so fast paced and action oriented that I think you lose some of that those viewpoints that you got in the early half of the movie. Yeah, I totally agree. And one of the things I noticed on this watch through as well was right from the get go, kind of the differences between how we grew up, you know, and I'm, I'm comparing us to Andy because we're about the same age as, as Andy in this movie would be. How we grew up 25 years ago and even how kids are growing up now. You know, I have two kids now and and I'm watching my oldest kid, you know, slowly getting to the age that Andy would be in this movie. And even the differences in how we played with toys as kids, I think is really striking. And you don't really notice it until you do. And then you can't unnotice it. But like the very first shot in this movie is Andy moving Mr. Potato Head down into the frame with a gun, and he's like, stick him up. And then I I was really struck by how much kind of gun imagery was in this movie and how much talk of, like, killing people was in this movie. And I think, you know, for our generation, that was just kind of commonplace. But more and more, I think movies and studios are starting to move away from, from having guns in movies as much. But I think that's what made it stand out to me as... Wow, this is actually kind of a violent movie. Like, there's a lot of guns around. Woody and Buzz are fist fighting at one point. That's not something you really see in in the rest of the Toy Story films, or really mostly in Pixar in general. And I think it really did kind of underscore to me, A, Brad, we're getting old already. And B, there actually has been kind of a shift, not just in 
storytelling, which is very evident in Pixar movies, but in how kids actually play. Like, I wonder, I wonder how much this is going to work with kids as generations go on. Do you know what I mean? Like, do they look at yeah. this as like, oh, this is a story of like how my dad would have played with toys, you know, and less as I am Andy. But honestly, Bob, I think you do have a point there that this definitely is a time capsule of sorts. I do think that there's a sense that this movie wasn't just capturing what the 90s child went through with play, but honestly, what a child from the 50s and 60s went through when they were playing. Because, like, you have the very obvious motifs of moving from this wild, wild west of the 40s and 50s into the space age of the 60s and 70s. We're going to the moon. We're traveling. And, you know, all the little boys of that generation moved from wanting to be a cowboy to wanting to be a space ranger, you know? And so I I think that it's not only capturing what play was like in the 90s, but I, I do think it's capturing an essence of play and a shift of culture that you saw back in the 50s, 60s, and 70s. For sure. And I think that's a really good segue into talking about Pixar as a whole, because with this film, they ushered in a completely new era in terms of animated films. This was the first fully computer animated feature length film, and it really did change things. And I really get a kick out of watching it now, Brad, because we're so used to seeing computer generated imagery now and computer animation that I think it's pretty easy to see where Pixar was doing a really good job even 25 years ago and where they've kind of improved by leaps and bounds now. I think like back then even, they were really, really good at textures, like the hardwood floors, the the kind of scuffed up doors in Andy's house, the the texture of carpet in Sid's house. They all look fantastic and really realistic. But then you start to get into like what the human people look like, what the dogs look like. And it's 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 pretty rough. Uh, I think if I'm even being generous, I'll say it's pretty rough. I actually think that I think two things. A, I think Scud is one of the best names for a little dog that I've ever heard in my life. And B, I actually thought Scud looked really good. I I thought that his animation was pretty solid. The humans in this movie are like, I don't know. I remember watching this video about fear once and it talked about how like one of the things that's innately like brings about fear in the human soul is when something looks completely normal, but like just is slightly off or something about it is slightly wrong. Yeah. They call that the uncanny Valley. Like if, if the animation is too realistic, your eye can still tell that like there's something a little bit off, but it's like your brain has like this cognitive dissonance of like, I can't tell what's wrong, but I know something's off. Well, whatever the anime, whichever part of the animation department was in charge of human animation, they set up camp in Uncanny Valley and just lived there. Because <laughs> the think humans <laughs> in this movie are a little bit terrifying. See, I don't think they're Uncanny Valley because they don't look like humans at all. They look like they look more like toys than the toys do. They look like terrifying. Like if if you tried to three D print a human face, like that's what it would come out <laughs> looking like. It, it's. It looks like latex and and just gross. Well, and the weird thing is, like, this might sound really weird, but the shot when the mom walks out with the birthday cake or whatever it is and she steps on the army men, Mm -hmm. I'm like, oh, like, her, like, shoes and legs, like, that actually looks fine. They look great. Sure. Like, that looks fine. It's the faces that they just are not good at at this point in their career. 
Well, Brad, before we get to the break, I do want to talk a little bit about the movie itself. I feel like we've kind of talked around the movie in a way. You know, we once we get past that first scene of Andy playing with his toys, we launch right into Randy Newman's soundtrack, which has become... I mean, you know, aside from the Lion King soundtrack, I can't think of another one from my childhood that was as important as this one. Randy Newman is a very eccentric artist. I think he's an acquired taste for a lot of people. I don't find myself listening to his non-Toy Story stuff very often. But, like, he's so synonymous with this movie that I I love everything he does in this movie. I want to get your your sense of the Randy Newman songs, you know, especially, like, You've Got a Friend in Me. It's a really happy song for me, but I think it's so nostalgic. I found myself like tearing up at the opening credits of this movie because it's just it's such a comforting thing to hear Randy Newman singing that song for me. Yeah, I I think that if there was ever a soundtrack in a movie that like captured the essence of nostalgia, it would be this singular movie. The beyond even beyond you've got a friend in me, every single song that is done. Uh, I'm thinking about when the song that he sings about times are changing and, you know, when Buzz is kind of taking over the prime yeah, spot yeah. of prime toy. That song makes me so like wistful and sad and like it makes me long for the old days just simply by the melody. Like forget the lyrics. And so I think that consistently throughout the movie, every single song is designed to make you feel nostalgic. And, and it's perfect. It really is perfect, Brad. And while we're on the subject, I want to bring up that the, the really sad song when Buzz tries to go flying out the window. First of all, I think the movie needed more of that because that's the most emotional scene in the whole movie. And it really gets me. And I think it underscores something that we're probably going to touch on in the second half of this episode, which is that I actually think that Buzz's story is more compelling than Woody's story is. And I wish that they would have made Buzz more of a main character than they even did, because Buzz's story is super fascinating. But that song that Randy Newman plays, you know, where he says, I will go sailing no more, and you watch Buzz confident in his abilities just like plummet down those stairs i honestly think like that was the birth for me of the pixar tear fest that they <laughs> that they implemented in every movie afterwards that's the first point for me where it's like oh pixar has figured out how to manipulate my emotions because that song matched up with that scene is absolutely brilliant well, and I know we'll talk about this after the break, but I can't imagine a more perfect casting for two roles than Tom Hanks as Woody and Tim Allen as Buzz. But before we get into that, I do think that the best way to drown your tears is in a glass of Irish whiskey. So, uh, Bob, what say you? How about we get to this Whistler Irish whiskey? Let's get to it, Brad.
All right, so today we are checking out the Whistler Irish Whiskey. Now, we were lucky enough to be sent some samples by the Whistler uh, and their PR firm to sample in exchange for a fair and unbiased review. And they actually sent along three different things in the Whistler line. The first is their Double Oaked Irish Whiskey. The second is their Irish Honey Flavored Whiskey. And the third is their Irish Cream. So we're going to give a full review of the Double Oaked. Typically, we don't do flavored whiskeys on this podcast, but we're also going to give our thoughts on the Irish honey and the Irish cream. Uh, so first of all, we want to say thank you to the Whistler for providing these samples. But Brad, let's get into this double oaked. This is a whiskey that, uh, like most Irish whiskeys, is aged in ex-bourbon barrels for at least three years. It has to be to be called Irish whiskey. And then it is moved over to Oloroso sherry casks for another six months. This is a blend of single malt and single grain Irish whiskeys. And like the Sexton, it had that sherry finish to it. You know, Brad, I'm starting to realize that we have had enough scotches and enough Irish whiskeys that were aged in sherry casks that I think part of the reason that sometimes I say an Irish whiskey smells scotchy isn't because it's made out of barley. It's because it's been aged in sherry. I'm starting to finally pick up on the fact that, oh, that sort of saline heavy smell is the sherry casks that were being used. If you remember, I think one of the Glenmorangies that we did, I think it was the La Santa, was aged in sherry casks. So this is probably like our fourth or fifth whiskey on the podcast now that has had some aging in sherry casks. Yeah, Bob, when I get into the nose on this one, I think that there's just a lot of beautiful notes. Um, it's kind of flowery, um, sweet. It's refreshing. Um, it just smells like a whiskey that I would want to sip on a hot summer day. You know, like throw one little ice cube in there to keep it cool. But other than that, it just has a nice, bright, refreshing scent that I'm looking for in an Irish whiskey. Yeah, and I think, though, that for me, this kind of toes the line between being too much sherry. Like the thing about the sherry cask finish is it really walks a fine line between smelling like wine and smelling like brine. I think this one really tips into the salty sort of uh, scent a little bit too much, almost to the point where it, it kind of smells to me like pickly. And it really turns me off from the other notes because you are getting some of that beautiful, you know, honeyed barley scent that you would get with an Irish whiskey. And you have some of the nicer sherry notes on that. But then for me, I, I don't know if it was just left in the barrel for too long, but it has this this overwhelmingly briny, almost pickly scent to it. And that takes it down a few notches, uh, in my estimation, at least. I'm only going to give this a six and a half on the nose. Yeah, Bob, I'm in a similar place. I'm going to give it a 7 out of 10 on the nose. I, 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 I agree with you. It definitely is kind of salty and briny on the nose, but I don't really mind that too much. Uh, but, it, you know, it's not a perfect nose. It's got some stuff going on for it. I'll stick it a 7. All right. Well, let's give it a sip, Brad. All right. So on the taste... I'm actually getting the the honey sweet a lot more, which is really, really good. Uh, it's very, very sweet on the front of your palate, on the tip of your tongue. There's not much alcohol present at all. This is only 80 proof, but I like that it's not thin. So like the alcohol isn't really making itself known, but that's not affecting the mouthfeel at all. It's sweet all the way through. And then on the back end, you get some of that sherry. And at first, it's the really nice sherry notes, those those candied fruit kind of notes. And then again, like right when I go to swallow, I start to get some of that brinier, almost pickly 
kind of taste to it. And I just can't escape that. It's less on the, the taste than it is on the nose, Brad. It's more of like a wisp here. But I just can't escape that. It's almost like a bread and butter pickle. And it it really detracts from the rest of the taste for me. Dude, I normally pick up what you're putting down. But uh, this one, I am not getting a pickle. Uh, I will say pickles are one of my least favorite things ever to be created by mankind. So if I was picking up any pickle, it would not be a good thing on a whiskey. Um, For me, I'm noticing at the very front of my tongue, I feel like I'm getting a little bit of saltiness, a little bit of brininess, and then it moves into that honey, sweet, oak um, kind of flavor. I get some of the brightness, some of those floral notes. And then as I finish, it moves back into being almost a little bit too much saline. So for me, on the on the taste, I'm actually going to give it a seven and a half. I, I think it's a pretty solid whiskey while it's on your palate. And then it struggles a little bit on the finish where I think I'd give it a six. See, I think the finish, like, again, I, I do have that sort of either sweet relish flavor or like a bread and butter pickle flavor, but the finish itself isn't bad. There's very little burn. It is a long lasting finish. It's a mouth watering finish. I'm, I'm going to give it a six and a half on the finish. I, I feel like this whiskey is above average in every category, but not really blowing me away in any specific category, which brings us to balance. In a sense, I think this is very well balanced. I mean, everything I picked up on the nose was present in the taste. And I think that the more negative aspects of the nose were toned down in the taste, which is a really good sign. I think the finish was pretty good. Uh, so from front to back, nothing really stood out in, a, in a, like an obscenely bad way. I'm going to give this a seven and a half on balance. Yeah, Bob, I think on balance, I'm right at a seven. Like you said, it's above average. It's a solid whiskey. Um, it doesn't have a lot going on for it. But what it does have going on for it is that it's a little bit unique. It's a little bit more briny than most Irish whiskeys I've had before. And I, I think that makes it I think that's a positive. I, I think that there's a lot going on for it. So, yeah, I'm going to give it a seven on balance as well. Well, that brings us to overall value. Now, this is actually not sold in the state of Ohio, although the Irish honey is for some reason. But the double oak is not sold here. I looked online and it seems to be that the average price of a fifth of this is about thirty dollars, twenty nine ninety nine, which is right in line with what you would see with most you know, kind of mid-tier Irish whiskeys. This is right in line with the Jameson. Um, It's a few dollars less than the Sexton would be. I think that's a pretty good value, Brad. Um, It's certainly not overpriced. I think the thing for me is that I don't think I would recommend this above any of those other Irish whiskeys that we tried. There's just something to this that while I respect what they're trying to do here, it just doesn't translate well to me, and, and I'd probably take a Jameson over this. I'd, I'd definitely take the Jameson Stout Caskmates over this. I would definitely take the Sexton over this. So in a sense, it's like, yeah, it's a good value, but if I'm going to recommend every other thing at this price point over this, I guess I'm only going to give it about a four and a half on value. Yeah, I think I'm right there with you. There, th- This is a solid whiskey, and I think that if it was like 23 to $27 in that mid-20s range, I would go, yeah, this is a great value. That's right where it should be. Um, for me, 30 to $35 is a little bit on the high end. And I think I'm going to give it a 5 out of 10 on value. It's, it's still a solid whiskey. It's still something I would advise trying. And I will recommend it. Um, but, but it's not my highest recommendation. So what are you coming out to, Brad, out of 50? I am coming to a 32.5. 
I'm coming out to a 31.5, so that brings us to an average of a 64 out of 100 or a 32 out of 50. This is an above average whiskey, and I will also recommend, um, but I guess with a little caveat that while it's good, I would recommend almost every other Irish whiskey that we've had on this podcast over this. So it's like, you know, if you really want to try a different Irish whiskey, sure, pick it up. See, what I hear you saying is that Irish whiskey is pretty much the greatest whiskey to be made. (laughs) According to Brad, it is. And that takes (laughs) us to this Irish honey. Now, this is the honey flavored version of the Whistler's whiskey, very similar to what you get with the Jack Daniels Tennessee honey. And Brad, what I'm getting on the nose of this is like all of all of what we got on the nose of the double oak, but with like a a sickly sweet chemically honey scent added to it? I don't know if I'd say sickly sweet chemical. I just might say sweet chemical. (laughs) (laughs) It definitely doesn't smell natural. Let me say that. Yeah. Yeah. It definitely smells like something has been infused in here. Uh, And I would probably use the word forced into this whiskey more so than infused. Well, so here's the thing. Like it, it actually tastes pretty, pretty good. It's really smooth and it's not up to like a full proof. This is only 33% alcohol or 66 proof. So it's definitely not up to an 80 proof whiskey and you don't get really much alcohol at all. My thing is like, I'm wondering if they use the double oak as the base for this or, or not, because I still feel like I'm getting some of those weird briny notes to go along with the honey. And that sounds like it might be a good combination, but in my mind, it's really not. Like if I want to drink something that just tastes like honey and whiskey, I feel like this has a bit too many flavors going on in it, and they're trying to cover some of it up by dumping honey on it. Does that make sense? It does, but when I I actually just took a sip of it, I I feel like it actually kind of tastes like real honey to me. Yeah, Brad, I totally agree with what you're saying. And, And the thing that is weird to me is that it doesn't smell like natural honey on the nose, but when you drink it, I think you can tell that there is real honey in this. And, and, you know, we're finding out now from the copy on their website that they actually are blending it with real honey. And I think that does make a huge difference in taste. I'm just wondering if some of those more saline heavy notes are, are hurting the overall product here. Yeah. The, the more, the more I drink of this, the more I can tell that this is actually like legitimate real honey. But I think you're onto something, Bob. The saline type of flavor doesn't necessarily lend itself well. Like, you know, I know that like salted caramel is a big thing now, but I, I don't know if salted honey is a really good idea. And that takes us to this Irish cream. Now, I'll say this. I am a sucker for things that can go in my coffee and make it taste better. But I'm over here right now, Brad, literally drinking this Irish cream right out of the bottle This thing is on point as far as I'm concerned. I actually brought coffee with me into the studio today so that I could try it. And I'm a big fan of this Irish cream. Oh, my God, dude. That stuff is delicious. (laughs) (laughs) That stuff is so good. Yeah, this is, I mean, just really beautiful. It's got some hazelnut kind of notes going on with it as well. Um, It is even lower proof. This is only 19% alcohol or 38 proof. But man, for a cordial, this is right up there with, you know, I might I might even recommend this over Bailey's Irish cream. I think this is just phenomenal. And it's like drinking alcoholic coffee creamer. Yeah, it's it's not something you'd want to drink on on its own unless you were like just trying to taste it for flavor like we are. Um, You definitely want to add it to your coffee or um, I don't know, even you could make yourself a nice little car bomb with it. 
but this is some this is some tasty Irish cream whiskey that I I agree with you, Bob. If I could find this on the shelf in Ohio, I would pick it up. So, Brad, you know, ultimately, I think the Irish cream is the best thing that we tried today. Uh, we did recommend the double oak. I am not going to recommend the Irish honey. Are you going to recommend Irish honey? I think I am. Um, I don't know if it's something I would ever want to drink on its own. Uh, but honestly, I think you could make some really interesting mixed drinks with it. And that if you want to learn how to make some sort of unique, interesting, honey-flavored, you know, mixed drink, I would go for it. Well, once again, we want to say thank you to the Whistler Company for sending us these samples. Brad, what do you say we get back into talking about Toy Story? Let's get to it. All right, so we are getting back into talking about Toy Story. And Brad, we have not focused on the voice performances in this movie. They had some really huge A-list stars sign up for this movie. And when I think back to, you know, what it must have been like for Tom Hanks at the peak of his powers to take a gamble this big, you know, every once in a while a movie comes out now that's computer animated that is such a dud that we completely forget about it. And then, you know, five years later, I'm scrolling somebody's IMDb page and I'm like, Oh, Anne Hathaway was in this weird animated movie I never saw. Robert Downey Jr. did Doolittle? Yeah, like stuff like that. But we look back on Toy Story now knowing that it was such a huge success that I don't think we take into consideration what a huge gamble this was by Tom Hanks and Tim Allen for their careers. Yeah, well, and and you even look beyond it. Like, there's so many recognizable voices from Pixar movies, like like John Ratzenberger, or even like uh, Don Rickles as Mr. Potato Head is spectacular. And so, like, I think the supporting cast in this movie is just absolutely perfect for what you needed it to be. But really, you you have to talk about Tim Allen and Tom Hanks, and for the risk that they took, I think that it has paid off. You know, at the very least, fourfold. Um, I think it'll pay off fifthfold. I, are they making a fifth movie? I don't know. They've been talking about it, but I wish they would have stopped after three, to be honest with you. But honestly, Bob, at the very least, you have to look back at this animated film. And I really think that this movie is one of the reasons you see big name actors attach their names onto voice acting roles. Like before this, you you don't really get big, big names you know, coming on to animated movies. And now that you have Tom Hanks at this point, a, I, I believe a two time best actor, you know, Oscar winner coming on to an animated film with a studio that hadn't really made movies before. Like this was a huge risk for them. And with the payoff and the amount of success that it achieved, I really think it launched all the movies that you see with big name actors in animated films. And the, the funny thing about this, Brad, is like, again, I am never going to criticize Tom Hanks for doing anything in his career. But I do think that like watching the beginning of this one, that that very first scene where Woody is calling the meeting to like try to break the news that Andy's birthday party has been moved up. I was like, 
something seems off here. And then I realized Tom Hanks wasn't playing Woody quite as peppy as he's learned to do since then. And it's just this really fun reminder of like, oh, yeah, they were still figuring out who these characters were. We know these characters now through four different movies and 25 years of history and seeing them in short films and seeing them on lunchboxes and everything else. But this was the first scene for the movie. And I think it's really funny to look back and think, oh, this seems kind of like a lackluster effort. Like <laughs> later on in the movie, I think Tom Hanks is brilliant and he's he's so good at, at making Woody sound excited and screaming and running around all over the place. But I think to have that one little moment at the beginning where I was like, why does this seem off? It's really it's really funny to think about like, yeah, they were still figuring this out as they went along. Well, and even that scene, I think, illustrates the difference of early Pixar versus later Pixar that like I really love the humor in this movie. The idea of a toy room having like an office meeting, like it almost feels like all the toys are coming out of their office cubicles (laughs) (laughs) and like coming to the break room for their boss to be like, all right, uh. Listen up, our our quarterly reports are actually due this Monday instead of next Monday. Like, there's something about that atmosphere that you don't really find in other Pixar movies. And I found myself to be super refreshed by that. I did too. And like, that humor was just so spot on in this film. Well, and I was laughing at all the dad jokes too. In that scene, especially when Woody was like, I thought that last week's plastic corrosion awareness meeting, (laughs) like I was just laughing so hard at that. It's so (laughs) dumb. And then later in the movie, when (laughs) later in the movie, when Sid is dissecting all the toys and saying that he's playing doctor and Buzz just says, I don't believe that man has ever been to medical school. (laughs) (laughs) Bro, that that killed me. I literally lost it. Well, and that's and, I, like, and that's something that Pixar didn't continue to do, especially in some of the more adult type humor that you got in this movie. I think there's a difference between more complex jokes that like the average three year old wouldn't get and jokes that are kind of dirty and intended for adults. And you see quite a bit of that in this movie, which you don't see in later Pixar. Yeah, I mean, you you have when Buzz first comes out and he's he's kind of like. Uh, threatening all of the other toys with his his fake little laser, and Woody Woody is like, "Oh, it's just a little flashing red light." And Mr. Potato Head goes, "Hey, he's got laser envy." Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like it's like moments like that where you're just like, "Yeah, you don't get that with Pixar of nowadays," and that's fine. Like I don't mind that they moved away from that, but there's something about seeing it in a Pixar movie that just almost makes it all the funnier now that they have you know 30 other movies under their belt. So, Brad, as we kind of move into you know our analysis and our final scores here. I'm in a weird place with this movie because do I think it's a great movie? Absolutely, I do. I don't know if this is the movie that I would pick from the Pixar canon to be like in the 100 best movies of all time. I do think that they've improved as they've gone along. And yet I'm so attached to this movie that it's really hard to give it anything but a 10. And when I look at what's going on in the movie, I have that same sort of conflicted feeling because one of the best things about this movie that they do really well is they tell a story about a family who is squarely middle class. And that's something that you don't see happening in Disney movies or in animated movies in general before this. Like the year before this movie comes out, you have The Lion King. And before that, you've got Beauty and the Beast and The Little Mermaid and Aladdin. This is not a movie about royalty. It's not a movie about princesses. I love that when you go inside Andy's house, all of the doors are scuffed up. And when you go inside Sid's house, like it's run down because of the sort of 
home life that he's living. It's really interesting to see a story that is centered on average everyday people. And I think that Pixar really needs to be commended for telling a story that is centered on that because it hadn't been done before. Yeah, Bob, I honestly hadn't even thought about that. But I think the idea of telling a story about somebody just just lumped squarely into the silent majority of what makes up America as a country really was maybe not a bold move, but it was a really smart move on Pixar's end because I think it's something that a solid 70 or 80 percent of kids in America could relate to. And they could watch Andy and go, yeah, like. I know what it's like to have a birthday party and have some kids over, and I know what it's like to get the brand new toy and, and play with it. And so not only can adults relate to it, but I think kids can relate to it well. And and I will say, I think one of the things that I loved most about watching this movie as an adult is that, you know, as a kid, I related to Andy, I related to Buzz and Woody and just loved the idea of my toys coming to life at night. But as an adult, I think there's a part of me that watched this movie from the lens of like Andy's mom and, mm-hmm. and being an adult and recognizing like, yeah, you just want to get your kid the best that you can get them. And and so you get them the brand new toy that everybody wants and you want to throw them a birthday party and you get frustrated when they leave their toys out. And, you know, it's things like that that I go, man, this is just such a relatable movie, uh, like on all ends of the spectrum. Well, and, and going along that same line, Brad, another thing that I think they do so brilliantly with this film is that this movie is is such an obvious kind of metaphor for parenthood. And I really got the sense that the filmmakers and the writers of the movie were kind of working out their own struggles and, and exercising their demons about being parents because there's so much language, especially in the first half of the movie, where they're talking to Woody about why he's jealous of Buzz. And Rex says something to him about like, uh-oh, are you being replaced? And and Woody's whole existential crisis is like – it's not like in the later movies where he's worried that he's obsolete and that like no one wants to play with him anymore. It's that – he has lost his kid, Andy's, you know, respect that that he's not looking up to Woody anymore and he wants to replace him with something else. And I thought that it was a really powerful metaphor for parenthood. The toys, you know, like in the movie, the toys aren't parenting the kids, but I think it's pretty clear that the writers are using them as a stand in for their own fears of watching their kids grow up and replacing them. And I, I thought that that was a really, really beautiful touch. And that's something that I love with all the Toy Story movies. Like the second one is about, you know, what it looks like to spend time with with people while they're still here. Like that's that's the uh, that's the overarching lesson that Woody has at the end is like it's going to be good while it lasts. The third movie gets really, really theological. I think these movies are definitely deeper than they let on. And I think they do a really good job establishing that with this first one. Yeah, Bob, I I mean, I think the more we talk about it, the more I'm just becoming aware that the Toy Story franchise is just brilliant. Um, And and when I come around to evaluating this, you know, installment of that franchise, I I am really struggling because I, I came away from this movie and just was like blown away with how well it has aged, um, how interesting it still is, how it changes my perspective. Um, I, I think it's a spectacular movie, and and I don't know. I want to give it a 10, but there's something in me that yep. I think I'm going to give it a 9.5. Yeah, I totally understand that impulse, Brad, because like I said, I had conflicting feelings, and I just shared two huge things that I thought were great about this movie. But then I also feel like, here's my big problem with this movie. The, the main character, Woody, is not the one that has the most compelling story. 
Like, this is ultimately a, a movie about Buzz's arc. Buzz has a much better character arc than Woody does in this movie. On paper, yes, it's a movie about a guy learning to come to grips with this new presence in his life. But Buzz's whole arc is like, he's a toy that doesn't realize he's a toy. And the existential crisis that sets in because of that. And I'm like, that's the movie I want to watch. I shouldn't have to view Buzz through Woody's lens. And like the second movie is more Woody's story than Buzz. And I think they do a great job with that. But this movie really is more about Buzz than it is about Woody. And I think the problem with it is that they keep trying to make it be about Woody. And in fact, like Woody really doesn't get his comeuppance in this movie. Woody does some really downright villainous things in this movie. And at the end, like everything's taken care of. He doesn't get punished for his misdeeds. We all live happily ever after. And I love Woody. But if I'm looking at this movie alone, Woody's kind of sucky in this movie. Like, he's a terrible person for at least a good chunk of the movie. He's not nearly as likable as he should be. And I think for me, that really takes this specific movie down a peg. When I look at this movie up against all the other Pixar movies, even like Finding Nemo, I think this is the more important movie because of what it kicked off. I don't think that we would have Pixar if this movie wasn't such a huge success. But then I look at Toy Story 2 and Toy Story 3, and I'm starting to think, wow, you know what? I think Finding Nemo is a better movie than this. I think Coco is a better movie than this. I definitely think Toy Story 2 is better than this. I think there are other films in the Pixar canon that are better than this. And it's really hard to not give this a 10 because I'm so nostalgic. But Brad, I think I'm going to give this movie an 8.5 out of 10. It's a really great film. I enjoyed it a lot. But to give it anything higher than that, I think, would be just to play into how much it meant to me as a kid and not a reflection of like how good I think it actually is. So I'm at an eight and a half. Brad, you're at a nine and a half. That brings our average to a nine out of 10. But you know what? We want to know what Film and Whiskey Nation thinks of this movie. I can't imagine we're going to get a lot of negative reviews on this, but if you want to give us some feedback, you can find us on social media at Film Whiskey on Instagram, Facebook, and Twitter. Or you can give us a call. Our phone number is 216-800-5923. Once again, that number is 216-800-5923. Or you can leave us a voicemail on our Anchor.fm webpage. Go ahead and look us up, anchor.fm slash filmwhiskey. Leave us a voicemail there, and your voice shall be heard by the millions of listeners in (laughs) Film and Whiskey Nation. Next week, we're going to be looking at the movie that won the Best Picture Oscar for this year of 1995, Mel Gibson's directorial effort, Braveheart. So please join us for that next week. For the Film and Whiskey Podcast, I'm Bob Book. I'm Brad G. And we'll see you next time. Also, um, and I hate to be the plot hole guy here, but like, I, if if Buzz's wings could cut through the du- duct tape, why didn't he just do that when they were in Sid's room? <laughs> yeah. Yep. <laughs> yep. Well, and like, it's the problem is it's not like he just suddenly realized, oh, maybe my wings could do this. He does it with such confidence. Yeah, he's like, not today. You believe, yeah, you believe that he knew that that could happen all along. <laughs>
Yeah. It doesn't make I, any yeah, sense. Yeah, that was that was 